Thank you, Michelle, for reading that chapter for us. I'm not sure if you noticed, but it's a bit of a lengthy chapter. Um, it's, it's actually the longest chapter, not only in the story of Abraham, but in the entire book of Genesis. It, isn't it a bit interesting that this story of uh, finding a wife for Isaac happens to be the longest chapter in this in this entire book, one author calls it the most pleasant and charming of all the patriarchal stories. And he characterizes it as more akin to a novel, a novel that is driven much more by dialogue than by action. Uh, I recently read again Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Guys, if you haven't read it, you need to. And when I was studying this, I I couldn't help but hear lines from the book just in the background. When Laban and his mother, for instance, hear the servant say that Abraham is very rich and that all his wealth is going to his only son, I couldn't help but think that Laban and his mother were like Mrs. Bennett, just going on about the size of his potential fortune. And a single man with good fortune must be in want of a wife. The lengthy dialogue here should clue us in that the author wants us to pay close attention to what is said. But the driving force, the driving force behind the chapter is this one question. One question. As we read the dialogue, it's a question that begs an answer. How will God move the promise, his covenant with Abraham, into the future? In case you you haven't been with us, Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, that his children would outnumber the sand on the seashore, the stars of the sky. And all of this was to come through this child of a miraculous birth, Isaac. But as the passage tells us, Abraham is now well advanced in years. And in our language, he is old as dirt. God has been so faithful to Abraham. He's full of wealth, and as we've seen, he's full of faith. But the child of promise, Isaac, as Aubrey mentioned last week when he talked about Sarah's death, he's noticeably absent from the scene. The author of Genesis doesn't explain, but Isaac's absence in these chapters and the fact that he turns out at the end of this chapter to be living away from his father, it suggests that at some point a rift occurred between Isaac and Abraham. It's this strange silence that kind of shouts at us that that something's happened. You know, what happened in Genesis 22 When Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac before the angel stopped him. Even though we want to see that Isaac went along. You know, it might have taken a while for Isaac to process that. (laughs) He might not have understood. He didn't know God in the way that his father Abraham did. And he wouldn't know God in that way for some time. The point of this is that. Isaac lacks a wife, so he can't bear children. He can't carry on the promise at this point. Also, for whatever reason, his absence tells us that he has little interest in following in his father's footsteps as a man of faith. The first and everlasting threat to God's new way, his promise to Abraham, comes not from outside enemies, but from internal weakness And a lack of dedication. 
How will God move the promise into the future? How will he overcome the weakness of man to ensure that the promise doesn't die along with Abraham? That's the question. That's the driving force behind this chapter. And that's why this chapter is so long and so important. And the first way that the promise moves forward is through these interesting, very wise steps of faith. I find it very interesting throughout this chapter that it's clear that the characters are taking step of faith, steps of faith. Abraham, his servant that he sends, and Rebekah, they all take these steps of faith. But at the same time, these are wise steps of faith. They're not blind. They're based on what these characters have seen God do in the past. And so the way the promise moves forward is through these steps of faith. First, Abraham. He knows that Isaac needs a wife, but he also knows that not any wife will do. A wife from a local Canaanite tribe with her own customs, her own gods, she would immediately lead Isaac away from the promise, away from a relationship with Yahweh. Only a woman willing to leave her family, just like Abraham did, would also be willing to leave her gods to follow Yahweh. By the way, this is essentially what Paul is saying in the New Testament when he tells believers, don't be yoked with unbelievers. It's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of discernment. And this is what Abraham is exercising. Don't take a wife for my son Isaac from the women of the Canaanites, but go to my home and find a wife for him there. You know, we've talked about some, sometimes in the life of Abraham about the fact that he had to wait to receive the promises of God. He had to become the kind of man who could receive God's blessings and use them in the right way. And in the same way with finding a wife for Isaac, he needs to find a woman who is also worthy of the promise. So it's this effort. It's an effort to guard the promise, to guard the covenant that Abraham sends this servant to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. But in the case that the woman is not willing to go, Abraham offers a stern command in verse 6. Make sure that you do not take my son back there. On the one hand, Abraham trusts God. The God that has carried him thus far. The God with whom he's walked all these years that God has richly prospered him. He trusts that God will provide a wife for Isaac. On the other hand, God doesn't presume upon God. This is part of trusting God. We trust him, but we don't presume upon him. And even if God doesn't provide a wife, a woman who's willing to come back, he knows that the most important thing is to protect the covenant. For Isaac to return to the homeland is to forfeit the promise. So it's notable that the last words, the, the, the words at the end of verse 8 are the last words we hear from Abraham's lips. He won't speak in chapter 25. We hear that he's died, but he will not speak. The man who stepped onto the stage of history as a no one, a man of doubt and fear who questioned God, now exits with these final words of faith, complete trust in God. The last words he utters are this wise effort to guard the promise God entrusted to him and faith that God will move it forward. The servant is thus sent. 
to complete Abraham's final duty as a father. The first place the servant goes is a well, which is a customary place to find women who were drawing water. Today's watering hole is not always a good place to find a wife, but in this day, it was. The first thing the servant does is pray. This is the first thing he does. And it really strikes me. This is just a bit of a side note. It tells us something about the mark Abraham has left on his servants. Undoubtedly, if you knew Abraham very well, you knew what it meant to live by faith. The first thing you do is you pray. I wonder if that's if it's that way with you. That if people know you very well, they know how to walk by faith. Even if you're not there, they know what it means to trust God and to walk by faith. The servant asks God to make it very clear that he's blessing his journey. But the sign he asks for is kind of a surprise. It's not this random magical sign. It's easy to read this and say, oh, that's you know, such a fun story, but that never happens. But it's not this magical sign. Lord, let the next girl who walks up with brown eyes, brown hair, petite waist, let her be the one for Isaac. It's not that. No, instead with his prayer, he sets up a, a test of character. Abraham has sent a very wise servant. The woman has to be willing to give him a drink. In other words, she has to be hospitable to strangers. And she has to offer water to the camels as well. In other words, she has to be extremely generous, hardworking, compassionate toward both man and animal. Notice the nature of faith so far in this story. So far, faith means to trust God that he will provide in the course of wise actions. Abraham, attempt to guard the promise, sends for a wife in his homeland. But he depends on God to make good of the effort. The servant asks God to provide a woman who's generous, compassionate, and energetic. Faith is this combination of discernment, prayer, and action. Rebecca shows up immediately after, after his, before he even finishes his prayer. And we, the reader, quickly find out that she's a great niece to Abraham, a cousin to Isaac. In our case, this would not be a good thing. But in this case, it's a wonderful thing. We know nothing about her character, but from the outside, everything is perfect. She's beautiful. She's young. She's never been with a man. The servant rushes to meet her. And notice the meekness of his request in verse 17. He underplays his need. He's just been on a huge journey. And he says, please give me a little water from your jar. But look at the haste and generosity of Rebecca's reply in the next verse. Drink, my Lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. When she had done so, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have drunk as much as they want. She quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw more water until she had drawn enough for all his camels. Generosity appears to be Rebecca's knee-jerk reaction. She goes over and beyond the hope of the servant, not only providing a drink for him and the camels, but giving the camels water until they're no longer thirsty. I'm sure most of you have had the opportunity to do such a thing, but it would have been up to 25 gallons of water per camel. 
Throughout these verses, the author is highlighting the efficiency with which Rebecca does her work. Her beauty is filled out by this hardworking, energetic character. And more importantly, this enthusiastic hospitality, it reminds us of another person. Abraham, going to and fro as he prepares food for his visitors back in Genesis chapter 18. From everything we see, Rebecca is a woman who's capable of receiving the promise. Capable of being a wife to carry on the covenant. But notice what we're told about the servant in verse 21. Silently, the man watched her with interest to determine if the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Readers, you're supposed to kind of cry out, what? Can you not see it? This woman is amazing. Don't you know this is it? She's the one. But faith is rarely about just blind steps in the dark. You know, it might be, there might be times when it's hard to see anything. The fog is so very thick. But in this story, the, what we see is that faith is about taking steps through a process of discernment. Even though the servant sees that this woman from the outside just seems amazing, there are things that we still need to find out. She appears wonderful, but we don't know anything about her. The, the servant, at least, knows nothing about her family, even though we do. Or whether she would actually be willing to leave them to marry Isaac. Once he does discover her close relationship to Abraham, success seems closer at hand. And so he does bow down and praise to God. The next scene is at Rebecca's house, where the servant has to do the hard work of convincing her family to allow her to go. You know, for some reason, maybe because her father is incapacitated, uh, for whatever reason, Rebecca's brother Laban runs much of the show. But both Laban and his mother become foils, basically, for the exemplary character of Rebecca. Laban is greedy. It's only once he sees the golden jewelry given to Rebecca that he runs out and decides to show this extravagant hospitality. Then in verses 40, 34 through 49, there's this careful retelling by the servant of everything that's happened before. There's some details left out, some details worded in a special way, all with the intent to convince Laban and his family that the marriage of Rebekah to Isaac is in everyone's best interest. The servant is so effective in telling the story that at the end, Laban and Bethuel, who are pagans, by the way, but because the servant has told everything from the perspective of someone who follows Yahweh, these pagans say, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. About the speech, it's so lengthy. And the retelling of it is showing this, that it's something important. I want only to say about this, that in this process of faith, it doesn't exclude work. The servant has to think about, how do I say this in such a way as to convince them that this is a good thing? Well, he sees that uh, Laban is a greedy man, so he starts out by talking about all of Abraham's wealth. Faith doesn't exclude the need to work. Even though the servant sees that God is behind all that's happening, we'll talk about that more in a moment, there's still the effort that goes into accomplishing this. First thing the next morning, the servant's ready to leave. 
The discernment process is over. It's time to go. You know, this is what we do once we've prayed and discerned something. We act. We take the step. But the greatest step of faith really is still to come. Laban and his mother request that Rebecca remain longer. Again, though her happy daughter is married, as Mrs. Bennett would say, she never wants her to leave. And so the servant would be, he's concerned, ten days could turn into longer or it could turn into never. The servant knows they need to go. But the final decision is left up to Rebecca. It's a key moment in the story. Will Rebecca leave her family and the only place she's known to live with a man she hasn't met yet? To go to a place, a land that she's never known? It's just one word in Hebrew. I will go. One word in Hebrew. But it's a step of faith into the unknown. That's how Rebecca responds. But even for her, it's not a blind step. She's seen evidence of the favor of God on Abraham. She's seen the faith of the servant when she saw him pray and heard him pray. And she knows that somehow that man's prayers led him directly to her. The story reveals Rebecca as a person of faith like Abraham. A wise person of faith. An industrious person of faith. She's capable of receiving the promises of God. Worthy to serve as a wife and mother in the covenant family. And only a woman of faith like this will be able to overcome the weaknesses of Isaac. The steps of faith from Abraham the servant and Rebekah, they combine to move the promise forward. But these steps are rooted in a trust in God's providence. More than anything else, it's God's providence that moves the promise forward. God's presence here, his guidance in the story, it's that's what preserves God's promise to Abraham. And Abraham's children. God never speaks in the entire story. Yet the main characters in the author are persuaded that it's God who's ordering all the events. Abraham believed God would send his angel before the servant so that he could bring back a wife. But the place this theme is most clear is from a phrase the servant uses four times. Clearly the author wants us to see it as a central idea. In the Hebrew, the word means to grant success or to prosper. Look, for instance, at verse 21 in chapter 24. In verse 21, it says, The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It's also in verse 40, verse 42, verse 56. And just to make sure we catch it, it's said another way in verse 48. He says, I praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Even though the servant was taking orders from Abraham, even though he did a great deal of work, he believed the results of his labor belonged to God. The same idea becomes embedded throughout the biblical narrative. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. 
Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. There's also the entire book of Esther where God's name is never mentioned, not once, but things seem all too convenient to be just coincidence. It may be very well that you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. Nothing is more characteristic of biblical man than this profound and pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday human affairs. Do you believe that God is active in the everyday events of your life? Everything. What, what are we really talking about here? What, what is providence? You know, when we think about the ways that people account for what happens today in the world, in our lives... Two of the most common ways are either through chance, coincidence, things just happen, or this fate, determinism, that's sometimes good to us and sometimes is very bad to us, sometimes very cruel. Either way, with those cases, human actions don't, meet, don't account for much. It's chance, it's coincidence, or it just happens. It's fate. But in this story, in providence, God works with the characters, with human action. His providence doesn't devalue the work of humans. In fact, it elevates the work of humans and it makes it more productive. It establishes our work. So what does it mean to trust in God's providence? I think it's okay to admit that things like this are somewhat rare. (laughs) Praying for a clear sign and receiving an immediate answer. But such occasions do happen in our lives. I had, I had this very romantic, believe it or not, idealistic way about relationships and marriage. <laughs> How to meet my future wife. And even though it was, it was a little bit ridiculous, I, I feel like God really met me in that. And guided me to Katie in this very special way. And the fact that she's perfect testifies to that, right? <laughs> You know, certainly prayer was involved, but otherwise it was just walking the course that I felt like God had called me to. And I met her. At the same time, trusting in God's providence doesn't mean a shortcut to discernment. Or to shortcut discernment. Every character in this story takes wise steps. And they see the hand of God before moving forward. Again, there's a proverb that's very appropriate. It is dangerous to have zeal without knowledge. And the one who acts hastily makes poor choices. Finally, God's providence in this story is a sign of his greater faithfulness to make a new creation out of Abraham's family. This is how the the servant sees things. It's in verse 12 and verse 14. In verse 12, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. That word steadfast love that's used a couple times, what it means is covenant faithfulness. Being faithful to the promises you have made. So the servant asked God, God, if you will be faithful to the promises you've made to my master, then provide a wife today. 
God's providence is a sign of the larger work that he's doing in all the world to heal all creation. God's provision of Rebekah is a clear sign that he's moving the promise forward. When we pray and God answers our prayer, no matter how small it is, that's because God loves us deeply and because he's committed to us. Because he hasn't abandoned us. He's, he's committed to making something new out of us. Anytime you look back over your life and say, God did that. Because that's how providence works, right? It's mostly in retrospect. Anytime you can look back and say, God did that, that's because God hasn't abandoned you. It's because God does care for you. He sent his son Jesus to rescue you. Faith in Jesus allows us to look at life through the perspective of God's deep care and providence over our lives. You know, it doesn't mean that life is perfect, but it does mean that joy isn't an accident anymore. And suffering has a loving purpose involved in it. Will you trust in God's providence in your life? In the small, in the mundane, and in the big. That his providence is a way of loving you. Will you trust in God's providence for our church? Our church is moving forward on the mission of God's kingdom. All of this about taking wise steps, discernment, prayer. If you've been in any of the meetings the last couple of weeks, then I think you could kind of find some of those things consistent here. Our church will come to the point where there's a need to take a step of faith and action because we've done the process of discernment. And that step of action of planting a new church will be one of the hardest steps we take. We haven't even taken the, the hardest steps yet. Will you trust God's providence in your life and in our church? That he's guiding us forward to the day when he will heal all of creation. He will heal your life, all the baggage, and he will, he will heal all the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.